morning. I hope it's a good morning and you're wide awake and uh, now you know what it's like at the uh, for Fridays for your students. You'll feel a little wore out maybe. What am I to teach? Is the title of this workshop and um, I'm not sure exactly uh, what grades we have represented here. It will be aimed um, toward those who maybe do teach in a conventional, uh, primarily conventional setting. And I would like to hear, first of all, a little bit from you. And we are going to do a little hands-on project then. So I'd like to, first of all, hear from you. Uh, what are your frustrations in teaching content subjects? When we say content subjects, we're thinking more like science, history, geography or social studies, um, what are you facing? Because I do want this to be a very practical class to exactly what you're facing as much as we can and so you can take something away uh, from this class that hopefully will uh, be a benefit. Yes, Stan. Again, please. Okay, not able to cover the whole book. So what you're saying? Okay, so we've got 630 pages and I'm at, you know, 225 and it's halfway through the year. I calculate this whole thing, I'm gonna be at about 400. That's two thirds of the uh, content. Am I doing a good job, am I doing a bad job? Should we go faster? Should we skip things? Very good point. Is that probably the single biggest frustration in content subjects? It's that there is so much there. How do I even teach it all, much less have them retain it? Anything else you wanna to add to that frustration? Yes, sir. Okay, very good question. Okay, how to get both in? Because if we're focused too much on merely lists, just a list of things, uh, that becomes, number one, not very enjoyable and boring to the students because it's just memorized this list, can you match these dates? And how can we, with that emphasis of details, they'll also give them a broader picture of how does this fit into what has happened in all of history, especially in a history class. Even in science, though, can become so, we can become so obsessed with details and definitions that it does not connect to any broader or larger principles. So that is a, it's a, it's a tension point of which we could swing to either side. Obviously, we can't really teach the bigger picture without the details, and when you wouldn't have any substance. But you could get hung up on the details in which you know, they can spit out a lot of information, but there's a minimal amount of understanding in the context. So we need to create the context for these facts to fit into. Very good, important. What else? Or are there questions? Yes. Okay, so we're looking for some hands-on activities that generate interest in the, in the class. Okay, good. And while it's not the focus of the class, we maybe can uh, touch on some of those things. I think I saw another hand. Was there something else? Yes. Okay, another point of frustration that some curriculum, of course, is more of a frustration than others. You have the lesson, there's only three questions at the end. It's not enough to interact with the material uh, to master any amount of, uh, at any appreciable level. And so now what do you do? The teacher's busy already, are we supposed to type up another five questions? How can we simply uh, have the students learn better, is what you're saying, retain? Okay, and we will deal with some of that a question, a good question, important question. Let me ask you this. Why are we 
studying these subjects, other than the answers that, well, it helps us to understand God and it gives, you know, I know that. But as you think of the goal, we really need to start there. What is the goal of teaching this class? You might not write out a syllabus, you might not have thought of that extensively, but at least we need to spend a little bit of time as you look at this biology book or fifth grade social studies course or third grade, fourth grade, of course, some of this again is gonna to apply to the middle to upper grades uh, in particular, what do I want them to learn from this course? I think so often we fail to get to the, think about the end of the year and then backpedal and say, what can I do to get this job done? We just simply get the book and we get started once and we'll see how it goes. We'll see how much time we have for the subject and we'll see how far we go and you know what? When we've studied this for 180 days or three times a week or two times a week, we're going to close the books and we're done and we'll just see how far we get and hopefully you know, you pass the tests and all those good things in between. So let's go to the end of the year and think a little bit about what do you want to have happened by the time you have completed this course or taught whatever you did get taught. Now you tell me something on that. What are some of the goals in science, any content subject? Okay, so you're using it again as a tool. It's a means to an end. We're using it as a tool to help facilitate that process of good thinkers, analytical skills, etc. Yeah, that's good. Okay, giving them a broader context. You know, we live in this little, rather small world, and children live in a very small world, an extremely small world. And that's okay, I don't mean that to be, um, unkind to children, but it, it will help them to broaden the world around them and understand who they are in context of history and geography and all those things. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. So they can, the more they know, the more things make sense that they read and come across outside of the classroom and in other studies. Which is an exciting thing about being a teacher, isn't it? The longer you teach, the more you can plug things in and, oh, that connects to this, oh, that can, and I love to see that in students, especially as they get older in the older grades, they start saying, oh, well, we studied this three years ago and you mean that's happened at the same time or that's why this, that, uh, that's a rewarding thing. Okay, so let me ask you this, is your goal at the end of the year to have a specific set of information that they not only knew but know. Is that a worthy goal? That at the end of the year when they walk out the door at sixth grade, seventh grade, whatever grade, they know a specific set of information that they still know. Or are you okay with them forgetting most of what was studied in chapter after chapter? But you know what? They took that test and they passed it and they gave a huge sigh of relief. And now we move on to the next thing. And you know what, folks? You don't need to know that anymore. You know, are we going to still? No, all the tests from here on are just chapter by chapter. If you pass the chapter test, you'll be okay. And then we're going to move on and master that chapter and take the test and then we'll move on. <sighs> Good. So 24 hours before the test, they have crammed a tremendous amount of information in their heads and studied and studied and studied, come to school quick, get that test out, fly down through those dates one after the next before that <laughs> leaves them. And then, <sighs> you know, you get to the finals, we'll, we'll define a little more what's, you know, what you need to know in the finals and then, you know, school's over. You ask them at the end of the year, what did you really learn this year? Write down some things that you learned. And it's just a fog of information. We tend to have that happening. Or am I right? We tend to have that happening. In fact, maybe the teachers sometimes, there's a little bit of fog there. And that's one of the frustrating things about teaching for me. I've taught some courses quite a few times. And I'm very disturbed. I'm not sure if it's my age or my intelligence or what, but something. 
that when I go back and teach that course, usually every two years, because I teach just grade nine and 10, we teach one set of, and another set, so we teach biology one year and physical science the next year. And, uh, it feels like I have to relearn so much. Well, I think probably children run into that even as much or even more. First time coming across this information. Well, what about teaching according to what's on the test? How do you feel about that? Should you take a little sneak look and see what's on the test and then tell them as you go along, this is on the test. You want to remember this. And so you use the test to help define what you're going to emphasize and have them interact with so that when they get to the test, they're pretty much ready. It minimizes a review. First I saw heads going like this, and now I see heads just, because you're not, you're not quite sure what I think, obviously. I want to know what you think, first of all, and then we'll talk about it and see if we can come up with an agreement. Davey, first of all. Okay, so reality and ideally here, we maybe got two different uh, schools of thought going on, right? I mean, it would be really nice, of course, to know everything. I mean, wouldn't that be great? All 500 pages, 600 pages, with thousands and thousands of pieces of information, and there is, especially in history, just thousands of pieces of information. We know it all. So that's not gonna happen to us or to our students. So then we start backpedaling and say, well, Okay, well, what do we want to know then? Well, maybe the test would help to guide that at least. Okay, well, uh, what were we gonna say, David? Okay. Okay, so that would be an option is for you to write the test and say, and then you know that as you go along, either you made the test already or when you make the test, you know what you emphasized. Either way, though, it became a focus. Was there another hand here? Okay, that, that's a very good question. I think we would have to agree that unless you have very, very large tests or else a very, very narrow scope that you're emphasizing, the test would be more of a sampling of what has been learned. Correct. Good, good question. We'll maybe interact a little more with that later. Was there one other hand here? So I, I hear this tension between trying to show what is and explain what is an irreducible minimum without getting the scope so narrow that everybody can get 100 by just memorizing these 10 things or these 20 things, and you got it. But I do think there is the tendency, at least there is in me, and I want to talk about this just a little bit, for us as teachers to almost like to hold our students in a certain amount of suspense and worry. Okay? 
That's sort of like that, uh, the story that was read yesterday about the man who was looking at the fish, you know? Don't you think that professors he walked out sort of enjoyed having that student in a dither, you know, and then get kind of worried? There's something in us possibly that, and maybe it isn't even that wicked of a thing really, but do we kind of like to see our students squirm just a little bit? You know, what's going to be in the quiz tomorrow? Ah, just wait and see. What's going to be on these things here? Well, maybe, but mm, maybe not. And so they go home, and they're really not sure what to do with it. And the test comes along. What do we need to know? Well, what do we study? Well, we studied lots of things. Well, then you need to learn lots of things. Yeah, but what about like this here? We didn't even talk about that very much. It was just, you know, you talked about it a little bit, but that's it. Do we need to know all the, of those things? Well, don't know. You know, if you want to be safe, you really should know them. And so they go home, and huh, poor people, poor children. You know, we're the teacher. We know. Is there anybody above you doing that to you? Is the school board doing that to you? What do I need to do to be a successful teacher? Well, I, don't you know what it would be like to be a teacher? I mean, didn't you go to FB? Yeah, but am I expected to do this and this and this? Well, you never know. At board meeting, we're going to look at what you're doing, and we'll see, um, you know. Yeah, but can you tell me, if, am I also responsible to, to do this at school? Is this part of my job description? Well, you know, it could be. So who's doing that to you? Is God doing that to you? Is God? What do I need to know, Lord, to follow you? Well, you know, no. I think it serves as a model of how we relate to God and how God has shown us what he expects of us. Hasn't God told us what it takes to please him and to pass the test? Hasn't God? Very carefully. We're not worried that there's things that we don't know because maybe God didn't really tell us. Neither do we take the Bible and say, you know what, I believe God's going to use some things and not other things when he judges our lives. We take it all seriously. Therefore, there is a clear scope. And we're not worried that there's things out of that scope that God didn't give to us. In our schools as teachers, we want to know our job description. What is expected of us? Why? Because we want the security of knowing we're doing well and that if we follow what we were told to do, we will be a success. So why not give that to your students? Why not tell them what they need to know? And if you learn this, you will be a success. Rather than hold them, hold out a little bit and create this, this fear, and it does create uh, some worry that they can hardly deal with especially some children more than others, a very conscientious child who will go home and study for hours. And, and they're not quite sure. So they go to mom and dad and say, you know, I got a test tomorrow. Can you help me review? Well, what, what are you supposed to you know, Anything highlighted or any bold-faced words? Well, I don't really know. The teacher didn't say, just get ready for a test. And it's a tough one. Poor mom and dad are saying, I don't know. I guess we'll start with paragraph one. And we'll go through this thing and we'll just talk about sort of everything. And then they realize there was... 60 pages to this chapter, okay? So when somebody writes a history course on the history of the United States, and you would write it, and you would write it, and you would write it, how much do you think they would look the same? I'm gonna write a comprehensive history of the United States, starting back with the Indians, or go back as far as you can go, and you go through all of this exploration and you know the civilizations then, et cetera, et cetera, up through, up through, up through to present time history of the United States. There would be a tremendous amount of overlapping information, of course, but wouldn't there be quite a job of deciding what was important and what wasn't? That's why it takes them years to write a good book, because they go through a tremendous amount of information and pick out a small percentage of what they have learned, and they decided, the writer decided, this is what we think is important to know. I think it's your job then to take that information and further decide what is important to know. There is not a, an exact, while there are certainly certain givens in any history course, of course, the main people and dates, there is not an exact given set of information that would make a comprehensive United States history course. This author might choose to, you know, even the, the vantage point at which they look at it, therefore the things they choose to say, we want to talk about this versus we're going to talk about this. So there would be some of that difference. So 
the, the text is a tool for you as a teacher, saying, here is a body of information. Now you need to further decide, what are we going to do with all this information? We could get maybe careless with that, but I think we tend to err very much so on the other side. We want to get to the end of the year and smile broadly and say, we covered all 630 pages of our biology. And I would like to say, can I talk to your students a little bit? <laughs> can I give them a little quiz here at the end of the year and see how, what they know yet? See, we're not, it, it's sort of like going, I have a job to do, or I want to do something in my house. And I go to my toolbox and I reach in and I find a pliers. And I walk around and say, what can I do with this pliers? What needs to get squeezed? What can I pinch? What can I fix with this? With this? I go to my wife and say, I, I got this tool. What, what can I do with it? Is that what you do? No, you look at what you want to do, what you want to get done. Then you say, now what tools do I need? I see that paralleling somewhat what we're doing here. We say, what do we want this to look like at the end of the year? What do we want them to know? Now, one of my tools is going to be my book. And it's certainly going to be a lot more than that, though. It's going to be other things I learn. It's going to be places we go. It's going to be things I bring in to round this out and to get the job done. So the book is merely one of the tools to get your job done, not to dictate every word I say, like word for word. And some curriculums are very big on that. You know, I mean, it tells you what to say day after day. A great help for first-year teachers. And I'm not here to say that that is all bad. But the longer you teach, and I know some of you are new teachers, and so we don't want to overwhelm you with what we're saying here. But the longer you teach, the more you can maybe back away and say, um, can I get away from this book a little more? How, how can we work with this information and use it as a tool but not have it as such a defining set of information. I got to almost stay right here. Now, let me emphasize something about this here, and that is that you do need to work with your principal or board on this subject. You need to. You know, if you don't, you're going to end up with the students going through about third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, up through, okay? So now in our school, we use a back of sciences. And if every teacher says, you know what, I can actually only cover about two-thirds of it, and they decide what two-thirds they want to cover. That's something that I need to work on, is on my list to work on with our teachers, is what are you skipping, folks? Now, granted, I'm not talking about math. Oh, no, or English. I don't like diagramming, you know, folks. We're not going to do that this year. Don't you dare. Or I don't like fractions, so we ain't done fractions. I mean, pity the next teacher. Those are incremental subjects in which what you learn one year does matter the next year. But history and science are not as much incremental. There are certainly concepts that continue to be developed. But if you studied Central America um, history, and then the next year you're going to world history, there's a minimal amount of overlap and incremental uh, factors there. But go to your board or to your head teacher or principal, and one year in sixth grade, you might really study plants thoroughly. You're just going to stay there for a while, camp out. Plants. You're going to collect them. You're going to press them, maybe. You're going to look at them under the microscope. You're going to really get into plants and botany. The next year, the teacher says, you know, I really enjoy animals. I'm going to really do the mammal section well. Now, I know sometimes your science courses, have, you know, there is another set. But often it does, there are similar content, or at least maybe two years later. Or you might say, you know what, we're in eighth grade here. We're not going to study human anatomy much in this chapter. Because next year, they have biology. Sure, it would be a great introduction. But you know what, if we go study this, this is kind of the last chance to study this thing because from there, it's other subjects that you know, don't have that same information. So you work that out as a team. Who's going to really go a little deeper in those things and do well with that rather than try to cover all the information every year? So I would like to suggest that the irreducible minimum is the body of information that you are going to tell your students that they need to know to successfully pass the course. If you would only talk about the irreducible minimum, you would have a rather narrow scope. If your books would only have the irreducible minimum, they would not have a context in which to put this information. So I don't suggest that a book should have the irreducible minimum in it. Of course not. 
In fact, teachers should try to, as time permits, and as you become an experienced teacher, to go beyond the books and even create a broader context, at least in your own understanding, and be able to bring that in at times. So the book is not going to give you the irreducible minimum. Now, possibly the tests will help with that. And in fact, I would not discourage a first, second, third year teacher to use the questions and the test to pretty much decide what is the irreducible minimum. That's not a cheat. Again, I would rather have the students at the end of the chapter to know 100 things well than 1,000 things somewhat because you're showing them this is what we are deciding is important. Look at all this other stuff we talked about. It is interesting. It builds a context and a framework. But here is really what we want to know. Here's what we've decided is important. So we're going to write it down. We're going to do something with it. And we're going to uh, do a little hands-on with that just to see a little bit where we come up and to show the diversity of what teachers might decide is the important information. So we're using the word, and I borrow that, I believe, from Bruce Wilkinson, the irreducible minimum. In other words, I don't want to reduce this anymore. This set of information, if you don't know the set of information, you really have been told some things that you should know, and you will not um, at least do well in the test because this is stuff that you really do need to know. It doesn't mean you're going to truly test on every one of those, but it does create a body of information that they are expected to know and helps to shape your quizzes and your tests. And then we'll also talk about a little bit about creating that irreducible minimum yourself or through outlines, and we'll work with that. But again, rest assured, if you got grades five, six, seven, and eight, and you're teaching two science courses and two history courses, you've got quite a job. If you say, this year, I'm going to outline or make learning maps, which will show you what we're doing there, for those four subjects. Uh, it probably will last till about uh, December 15, <laughs> at Christmas time about, and you're going to be uh, overwhelmed, or maybe actually not even that long. Okay, I'm going to read, and I don't have quite enough of copies, and I want to team you up anyhow, just so um, you know, students enjoy uh, working in groups. I'm going to read, and maybe I'll just have you listen. Uh, yes, a question. Sure. Yes, and that's what I want to do. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're talking about, you're, you have a 30-minute class, 15-minute class, a 45-minute class. But at the end, or as you go, you're saying that you want to mark. And we want to discuss now what are ways to actually give them the irreducible minimum, okay? So I hope we've established that. It is fair, I think. It is right. It is good to define the irreducible minimum. How can we do that? And so let's, we want to spend the rest of the time exploring some ways. How can we give this information and what are memorable ways to give this to the students so that they have this irreducible minimum with them all the time? And again, the goal of defining the irreducible minimum is so that at the end of the year, they still know it. They still know it. I maintain that, especially in the middle and upper grades, there are certain things that should be quizzable and testable all year long. Quizzes are a great thing to do. You should have a couple quizzes a week. Again, depending what you're, the level you're teaching, I understand that. But do we still need to know this? Well, of course. We've told you what you need to know. And you have those on your notes, and all year long, we can dip back into that, dip back into that, keep that stuff fresh, keep, keep it, because we don't want you to forget it. Why teach it just to turn around and forget it? You mean we need to know those dates? Well, of course you need to know those dates. Why would we have learned them if you can just turn around and forget them? It's very pointless, isn't it? to teach them dates just to turn around and forget them. So that's why you only needed to learn 10 dates in that chapter, not the 40 dates that were talked about. We decided which are the important dates because we want you to know them. Okay. I'm going to read, and I think we'll go ahead and somewhat get into groups here, and I, I know we're gonna run out of time here, but I would like to just read a lesson that I photocopied out of a book, a history book. Maybe some of you teach this. It is God's World, His Story. I got permission from CLE to do this. And so I'm going to read it. And I want you, as I read it, to underline or mark all the facts that constitute this lesson. What are the facts? And I came up with about 40 to 50. And then I'm going to have you work fairly quickly in a little group. And you're going to try to decide 
what might be the more important facts? And then we're going to try to create a quick outline with that, or at least what I ended up choosing because we can't have everybody uh, do this. And then we also want to throw it onto what I call a learning map uh, as a different way of giving this information to your students. So let's just tell you to group. I think I have about 20 copies. We might have uh, 30 people here. So in groups of two, I think should be fine. So just pick out somebody close to you and say, we'll just work together. We three will work together. You two, that's fine. And get into groups. You can kind of spread out a little bit here so you can talk. And that way when I read this, you can actually start marking some things. Then I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to decide among yourselves what might be the important things in this lesson as a way to start kind of working with how do we define this information. and you to kind of mark things. So if you just want to be quiet, I'll read through this thing, and then I'll give you a few a little instructions. Okay, so I'm going to start uh, right at the beginning, Ur, Queen City of Sumer. How many know this information already? Like teach from this book? Okay, so most of you, this is like school. This is new information. You're supposed to learn this all, folks, 50 things. Okay. Of course, the students will have a broader context than you do, okay? So we're dipping way back into about 2000 BC in the area of Mesopotamia between, let's say, the Titus and Euphrates rivers and looking at ancient civilizations. So just in a little bit what we're doing here. All right. Ur became one of the most famous and most wealthy cities of all, of, of, of all Sumer. The king of Ur controlled all the Sumerian city-states as far north as Babylon. Drop down the next paragraph. The ruler of Ur, about 2100 BC was a very powerful man named Ernamu. His title was King of Sumer and Akkad. Akkad was an ancient name for the area of Mesopotamia around Babylon. The Bible calls this land Shinar. The Sumerian settlers built Ur around a ziggurat, much like most old cities of Mesopotamia. The temple tower and the sacred enclosure took about one quarter of the land in the city. The sacred enclosure was a large group of temples for offering to the gods. It also contained marketplaces for carrying on the business of the great city. The tower and sacred area were dedicated to the moon god, Nanar. Ernamu Ur built the ziggurat around 2100 BC. Some archaeologists think he built it on top of a much older but much smaller tower. The tower was a mass of bricks, 200 feet long, 150 feet wide, and 70 feet high. It was an artificial hill built by people who once worshipped who had once worshipped on their gods on mountain tops. The cities of Ur proudly called their tower the Hill of Heaven, or the Mountain of God. Below is a picture of the ruins. Drop down. Uh, let's see. Let's drop down. I guess I'll just go to the next paragraph. You can see that the tower was built in three layers, something like a big square cake. The bottom layer was the largest. The second layer was smaller, and the third layer was still smaller. The altar or shrine for offering sacrifices to Nanner rested on top of the third layer. Black bricks covered the walls of the lowest layer. Bright red tiles covered the second layer. Blue tilings covered the top layer and the shrine. The builders covered parts of each layer with a thick blanket of soil. They planted trees and flowering plants there, an artificial forest, reminding the worshipers of the faraway mountains. The size and beauty of Ur's temple tower shows what care the Sumerians took to try to please their imaginary gods. Each Sumerian city had a special god picked from the large group of Sumerian gods. The, temples, the city's temple tower was dedicated to that god. According to the Sumerians, the god protected the city from danger and provided good crops for the people. One layer of the ziggurat at Ur contained large ovens for baking animal sacrifices. The offers and the priests shared some of the cooked flesh. The priest burned the rest of the meat on the altar as an offering to Nanner. Another level of the ziggurat contained the apartments for dozens of women kept there to take part in the worship of Nanner. The priest committed terrible acts of immorality with these women as part of the temple worship. The Sumerian religion had few rules, of, rules or laws to teach people right from wrong. The people's ideas of right and wrong were no better than the sinful practices of the religious leaders, even the gods of the people even the gods that people looked up to were corrupt. To the average citizen of Ur, religion meant very little. He bowed down to his household god, gods, and on occasion he made sacrifices to Nanner. But his religion did not improve the way he lived or the way he acted. From 1922 to 1934, there was this man, Woolley, who did some excavating, dropped down to, um, there was this woman that we kind of trace now, who was Shubad, so two paragraphs down. 
Woolley found her remains lying on a wooden frame or bier. Care had been taken to provide as many of the things as possible that Shubad had enjoyed in life. The Sumerians believed that food, clothing, and other comforts of this life were necessary for the enjoyment of the dead in the afterlife. Everywhere in Shubad's burial room lay beautiful vessels of gold, silver, copper, stone, and clay. There were even seashells containing her makeup and eye paints. Remember, this is uh, almost 4,000 years later. They could still trace what this stuff was. Lady Shubad lay wrapped in a waist-long cloak made of a mass of gold and silver beads. She was decked in a headdress of thinly beaten gold leaves, connected by strips of beads made of precious stones. Her skull was crushed, but the headdress remained in such, a, in such good order that it was possible to reconstruct it on a plaster mold of a head, which is pictured down below. Last page, the excavators were horrified when they discovered Shubad's tomb. They learned that the wealthy of Ur had many people buried with them. Woolley very carefully studied what he found in Shubad's tomb. From his finds, he believed that Shubad's burial probably happened like this. 23 attendants, five soldiers and 18 musicians were in Shubad's tomb. They had walked down into the tomb along with chariots drawn by donkeys. All took their places in the tomb. The priests then proceeded with the burial ceremony. The musicians played funeral music. Then, at a given signal, each person lifted a silver or copper cup and drank deadly poison. There they patiently awaited death. They believed that they would continue to serve Shubad's life in the next. As soon as the attendants were dead, someone killed the animals. Slaves then filled the entrance to the tomb with dirt, sealing it off. Now, obviously there was a lot of information in there and I rushed over it and you would take time to talk about this and let the students even interact with this information. Try to really imagine how horrible it was to die this way. Try to imagine that type of worship. Maybe compare that to our type of worship. The fact that it didn't make much, much difference, their religion and how they lived. So there would be so much to talk about. But at the end, or as you go, somehow we're gonna decide what is important to expect them to know all these details. Do you, you probably don't remember them all. Even if we would discuss them, you'd have to work pretty extensively to remember about 50 pieces of information. And I suppose, depending on how detailed, you would find considerably more. Now, when creating an outline, I would suggest that you do not get weighed down with trying to make such a neat-looking English-style outline. It is a great way to show your students how outlines are important and useful, but you could become weighed down with details. So I would suggest that you feel, feel free fairly free with dashes and just kind of getting it a little more in a simple form. So let me just throw something up here. Often there's headings like um, how the Sumerians face death. That could become a Roman numeral. Or if you want to skip all Roman numerals and at times depend on the layout, I will do that. I just don't even use Roman numerals. I want to get to A, B, C, 1, 2, 3 because at the 1, 2, 3 is where I write my stuff rather than A, B. It's just again a little quicker way. Again, they study those things in English and you don't want to get overly weighed down with that. So I think often it's satisfactory just to you know, have your A, how they face death, one point, two points, three points. B, you want to move on to something else. Maybe there's only one piece of information. The right way then is to simply to write down maybe the boldface word, might be a definition, dash, and you write that definition and you're ready to roll on to C. Occasionally you might have one and an A and a B under it. That's fine. But it does give somewhat of an outline, and then we'll talk about how to give that to your students. So you can create a little bit of an outline, but maybe because of time, it's even more important just to say, um, let's find 10 facts that we think are important. So I'm only going to give you five minutes to do that because we don't have much time, and teachers are always busy and don't have much time. So let's make it feel now like you are a school teacher. And just highlight them, and maybe you can do an outline later for fun if you want to. Go ahead that you wrote down, that you decided were important, that I completely ignored, quickly. Okay, very, that, that is very good. Did you, and it didn't hit me until I was reading today, did you sense a little bit of contradiction in this story though? What was almost something said, a little bit, almost contradictory. Later it said that uh, religion wasn't really that important and they, it didn't shape their lives very much at all. 
But here it said that the beauty showed how much pressure they were under. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. And maybe some people took religion more seriously than others. That'd be true today. <laughs> okay. Well, right. It does say on 83, to the average citizen of Ur, religion meant very little. And that's why I was like, I wasn't quite sure what to do. But no problem having that information whatsoever because it generally the pagan cultures were very much, their lives, their cultures surrounded their religion. So that would tie into other things they probably learned about cultures and religions. What else? Okay, good. What else? Okay, good. Now we're getting into some morality of what this whole thing. Justified suicide. What do you think about that? You know, excellent. That that is bringing some uh, morality and and worldview into perspective here. Anything else? Yes. Mm-hmm. Over. Okay. Very interesting thing. They had a lot of people buried with them, and what? And you should move your students to pity these people. Look, they drank that poison only to usher them into eternity. Again, you're bringing in a broader context and cultural issues and helping them to be grateful for what they know today and that these people were ignorant of truth for whatever reasons. Okay, so how are you going to give this to your students? I'm going to suggest a few different things. Now, number one, you might have decided what was important, as we did. Or you might have went to the test and said, what is on the test that is in this lesson? And have them simply have a little running list of things they ought to know. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty. Just keep going in a little book, in a binder. Or if you are creating the outline, either put it on a overhead, turn that on. Now it depends a lot who your group is and a lot what age they are. Can you lecture and move a white piece of paper down through that covers things up as you talk? And they copy and you talk as they copy. That can really frustrate students. Fifth, sixth graders, I don't think you'd want to do that. I think it would be better after class to say, now of all the things we talked about, here are the most important things. I'm going to put them in an overhead. You've got 10 minutes to copy it down. Turn it on. You go into the next class. And they're there copying these things down. So whether you got that from whether you made up this little list from the test or you're actually creating an outline, I don't think it's so extremely important. But it is wrapping the lesson up by saying, here are the important things of all the things we talked about that you do really want to know. Now, you might say, well, we really, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in here. Well, let me just suggest that if they would learn three important things and learn them and learn them and remember them beyond the test, and you covered 400 pages this year out of your history book of 600 pages, how many pieces of information would they know? 1,200. That is a lot. And so really, three pieces of information per page is more than they're going to be able to even handle. I would say when it's all said and done, now I know there's things that they kind of know, but they don't really know. And, and that's okay. That's all part of the context. But if they would know Ur and a little bit of their religion, you know, and kind of, kind of bring there's some hazy things surrounding it, that's great if they would know that six months later. But you told them, and there's a way better chance of them memorizing it and knowing it, and some other things help fill in the gaps, a little hazy out there, but at least this stuff they do know. And then the last few minutes, I want to show you what to me is the most exciting way to have your students memorize this. And I think this fits really good from grades 5, 6, 7, and 8. And I've done this in science in particular, although you certainly could do it here. I get this idea from, I believe his name was Alan Rose, a famous researcher. He talked about learning maps in some tapes I listened to. And I don't know for sure what his learning maps look like, so I tried to make something that works for school. And students have really come to enjoy this. I will even make a photocopy of my learning map and give it to them. It is simply a more colorful way of an outline. You could have done this with this information very easily. In fact, I'm going to do that with this information just to tie it together. But science and definitions, because there's lots of definitions in science, you know, what's mass, what's weight, what's density, et cetera, this works very well. So I'm just going to throw up a sketch of what it might look like without taking time to put any information in it whatsoever. But this is typically how it looks. Now, children love visuals. It's a way to, to uh, appeal to their senses is the visuals and color. So I will give students 
and those grades, and when I do this type of thing, I will give them uh, highlighters. And again, you can take information off the test and create this for them. You don't have to spend an hour deciding this. I would give them highlighters, and they create their own learning map off of either an overhead or a photocopy. And I typically put the, put the title right in the center. So this title would simply say, uh, what was it, er, whatever it was. Okay, so the title's here, and they write that down, and they circle it with a highlighter. You can use whatever color you want, and boy, do they like color. Now, no messing around on your paper and drawing people and that kind of thing, absolutely not. It's all subject to teacher review. But they are creating something a little bit here by at least being allowed to, you know, put some color on it, et cetera. And then from there, I simply branch out with pieces of information. So in today's, I had given three things. So I might kind of put that heading that was A here. I won't mark it as A, obviously. And then from there, I will take three branches. One, two, three. And sometimes it need to be obviously very large. And you're writing this information in, writing it in. And maybe highlighting, if this was a key word or a definition, I will highlight that word. So they are now taking the information and they are writing it down. So now they heard it twice. You talked about it, you threw it on an overhead, they see it, and they are writing it down, and they even decide what to highlight. And I've been amazed over and over again, as we, would, we compile, of course, quite a set of papers by the time we're done with the science course, page after page after page. And all year long, it's testable and quizzable. I do very few chapter tests. It's often everything we've learned is subject to, unless we're really in some tough stuff in biology. All right, this is human anatomy only. Okay, but they know tests are pretty accumulative of what they've learned so far, and quizzes are certainly, you know, what are we quizzed on? It's your notes, and you know, it provides a security. Parents will say, oh, my children, they bring those notes home. They'll lay that page in through those notes. Brings them some security. What are we tested on? What's on these learning maps, or what's on these notes? You mean we don't need to know this? Is it on your learning maps? That dictates, you know, it is a huge time saver when it comes time to review. Because you don't need to spend all kinds of time writing things down and they're, oh, we need to know that. Oh, come on. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Oh, they know it all. Do I do some review? Sure, but very minimal. Because we've been quizzing this stuff all along. And they've seen it on previous tests, if it's going way back. And it is true, there's certain pieces of information that after a while sort of are off to the side. And eh, we never learned that very well, you know. And I didn't quiz much on it. It wouldn't be fair to even put it on the test. You do even inside of that sort of find certain pieces of information that you do tend to emphasize and therefore they master. The goal is so that that three ring binder at the end of the year provides the irreducible minimum and they have mastered this information. They have not mastered the textbook per se. They have mastered what you decided or the test help you to decide what is important. And I'll have students say sometimes, oh, I, I know where it is. It's up in the top corner. It's highlighted. I know right where it is. It's a tremendous visual. They'll say that frequently, which means they didn't learn it exactly, but at least they know where to go for it. <laughs> and they'll go back later, quizzes over, and they'll bam, 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 right there. Oh, that's what it was. But that visual I found to be extremely important in helping them to memorize it. And even if they highlight it, let them use some of that color. Now, I would like to give one last suggestion. If you do this, not a perfect system, but if you pursue how you would like to do it, I would suggest you do not try to do more than one course per year. And so maybe by now I've done, I don't know, six, eight courses. But I don't know if I've ever done more than one course per year. Maybe if you're a very efficient person and you teach only one grade, which maybe some of you do, you can do two. But you're probably looking at very close to a half an hour. But when you get faster at this, it goes along pretty quickly. And you go through and you decide this is important, this is important, you might be highlighting your own book, throw it into an outline, onto a learning map. It helps you to study. I think I'll learn so much more when I'm forced to decide what's important and I have some visuals myself. But one or two courses a year. So please, even if you're a first year teacher this year, you might not want to do it at all. Tuck it in your back pocket and maybe try it later because there's so many other things to do. And the last thing I want you to feel is that to be a good teacher, to show the irreducible minimum, I got four courses and I need to outline all of these. Again, that would be quite a frustration. So hopefully you can take something with you to tweak it somehow in your situation to help your children decide what is important to learn and then uh, define that for them. Yes, Lynn, question. I do make all my own tests anymore in these, in these subjects. But again, I didn't the first year. And I've taught enough of years. And sometimes now I'm only one set of books. So I still make up tests frequently. I'll just you know, pull things off of previous tests. And you don't feel like, again, to be a good teacher, you've got to make up all your own tests. Oh, my, no. That's why they did it for you. 
But in time, you may pull away from what they decide is important because you're really into this subject. And we go pretty heavy here. So I'm to make up my own test. Here we go pretty light. And so I make up a light test for this chapter because you move along things at different speeds and different depths. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm sorry. This learning map is just another way of giving them the irreducible minimum over an outline. I think it's a little more colorful and attractive. Right. It organizes it in a different way. You know, you still can take those branches out, which means it connects to this other loop. In other words, it's subpoints. I usually don't go down from that yet. Again, I think it works great for more like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I seem to really enjoy it. Nine and ten biology. There's just too much information to try to throw on something like this. So any other questions? Yes. No, I will never give this to them. I might give a photocopy if I'm under pressure and I've got to get to the next class. So theirs looks right like mine, but they may use mine and just put some holes in it. And, you know, they must copy it over. And I will say this, and this probably surprises you, but in most of those courses, they have no homework whatsoever. Like my biology courses, zero homework. And I know depending on what situation, that probably wouldn't feel right to you, but what do they need to do? They need to copy this over and memorize it. And they're quizzed a lot. And so they're not actually doing homework. I'm not opposed to homework. It depends a little bit how you want to run it. So uh, this does constitute homework. In other words, I created what they need to know rather than do the questions. Uh, it's not a perfect system, but it's just what I've chosen to use. Was there another hand? Yes. I would create a learning map per lesson, although maybe not one per day. You know. Like this would have been a lot of information for one day. This might have been a two-day study. Again, you say, well, that's easy to cover that. Well, that's true, but 10 pieces of information every day makes quite an accumulation of information, too. So, yeah, good question. Yes. What's that? OK, if, the, if it only runs twice a week, it would not be too much to create something like this twice a week uh, because it's kind of a couple-day thing, even though you ran it in one class. True. Any other questions? Sorry to keep you late. You're excused. I hope you have a great year. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.